0: On today's episode, we discuss Manuel Cortez and James Combs. You're listening to in the Boondocks, baby. Bad in the Boondocks. Hey, and welcome to Bad in the Boondocks. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Dan. And I'm Drew. And as always, we're glad that you're here. A few little housekeeping before we get into our episodes. First of all, thank you to each and every person that has taken the time to go and leave a rating and a review. We read every review that is left, and we love each and every one. If you have not, if you have not, please take a moment of your time and go to Apple Podcast or whatever platform you use to listen to us. Give us a rating and a quick little review. Just tell us something that you like. Also, remember you can go to www.batintheboondocks.com, and from there... You can listen to the podcast. You can get in touch with us through email. You can also subscribe to us from there. Also, join us on Facebook. Just go to Facebook and look for Bad in the Boondocks and like our page.
1: And you can also go on Twitter and follow us there. Just look up Bad in the Boondocks, and our page will be there. And you just click follow. And Instagram, our um handle is Boondocks Bad in the. But I'm pretty sure if you look up Bad in the Boonocks there as well, then you can just click on our page and follow. But um, we've been getting a lot of um, messages sent to us saying that you're going to, you know, start listening to us.
0: And we really do appreciate that as well. So thank you. One last thing. If you can, please go to our Patreon page. That is patreon.com, that in the boondocks. And consider joining one of our three tiers. You will enjoy great bonus content. We have a lot of fun doing it and stickers and other perks. Just check out the tiers and please consider joining. Remember, we are completely independent. You already receive completely ad-free episodes. We are making no money out of this. <laughs> well, However, we are yeah. spending quite a bit of a money lot but to I mean, improve it's, this experience yeah. for y'all. So please if you can consider supporting us.
1: But it's fun or else we wouldn't be doing it. So it we, is, but we it enjoy doing cost it. money. Yeah, yeah.
0: All right. We have your two mind. stories today okay. and I think it's your turn to go first.
1: Yeah, it is, isn't it? All right. Well um mine is going to be about Manuel Trinidad Cortez. I've never heard of them. You really haven't? Nope. I haven't either. Until (laughs) until the other day. But it was a cold evening on December twenty seventh, 1979. Clear skies and the moon and stars glistened off of the snow that laid upon the ground in Ashland, Oregon. To the tourist community, it made southern Oregon a beautiful sight to see. The tranquility was soon interrupted. That evening, when loud, terrifying screams echoed from the press box that overlooked Southern Oregon State College's football field. Rachel, oh Rachel, how could someone do something like this? The terror-stricken man cried out. He had discovered the cold, mutilated body of 11-year-old Rachel Iser, one of the two one of the two girls who had disappeared earlier in the day. The girl who was still missing was Deanna Jackman, the distraught man's daughter. Rachel's body was nude, and she had been dead for several hours.
0: And did you say they were just 11?
1: Yeah. Wow. There were numerous lacerations on her body inflicted by a sharp object. This was responsible for um, the massive amounts of blood that was on the floor in the press box. Rachel's face was swollen and blue, and a white cord was wrapped around her small neck. Rachel and Deanna were best friends. They attended separate elementary schools, but they met each other at a Jewish Jewish Sabbath school they always were so excited to see and spend time with each other on the evening of december 27th they decided to go play tennis at hunter park that was nearby where they had played many times before so it was you know the, just the usual
0: they're so little to be they're not even tall as yeah <laughs> but
1: i mean this this community was struck as like you know like peaceful and just tranquil
0: Mm-hmm. As they usually are.
1: Yeah, I meant some most of tomorrow, but they left Rachel's home at two a.m. and told her mother that she 2 would a be m. Back. two a.m. two p.m. Okay, her.
0: because I was <laughs> about
1: to say miss um type typing there. Hold on, oh, no. what kind of m. peaceful community? Two p.m. Okay,
0: 2 because I
1: just said it was in the afternoon. I don't know. Okay. I accidentally put two a.m. Okay, it's two p.m. Folks and that they would be back in a few hours. An hour passed, and Rachel's mother, Mrs. Iser, noticed that Rachel had not brought her white coat, and it was, you know, chilly outside, so she made her way to the park to bring it to her. When she got there, the girls were not there, and it wasn't like them to say that they were going somewhere and not be there, Mrs. Iser made her way back to the house, beginning to worry, thinking maybe they went back to the home, but the girls were not there either.
0: When you know, at this point, as a parent, well, you might not know this, but you would automatically, as soon as you got there and they weren't there and they're not, I mean, they're 11 years old. I baby, start
1: freaking out. You're in I'm your not even going to be honest. You're already, I would th- thinking that somebody took
0: them. Right, already. I mean, and you're I mean, just, I, gonna, know I mean, that. then you start looking even dumb places like, I mean, Behind the yeah, refrigerator. <laughs> anywhere.
1: Anywhere. Yeah. It doesn't matter. But um, when Rachel and Deanna did not return home for dinner, the parents of both girls became increasingly worried. They decided to search the neighborhood, spreading out and taking the most direct route to the park. But there was no sign of the two children, and their efforts seemed to be useless. Shortly after 5 p.m., they called the Ashland Police Department and asked for assistance. So, I mean, this was three hours after. Which is still pretty They quick left. Quick. Yeah.
0: Considering uh, that well, they... Al- well,
1: all the whole um time frame of this case is actually pretty quick.
0: Yeah, from missing
1: to... Missing to found and the conviction. It was all pretty swift. The parents became frantic. As hours passed without their daughters, Deanna's father searched constantly and decided to stop at the school and look around the bleachers.
0: And I wonder what though would make him decide to stop at the school. I mean, he really probably
1: wasn't thinking. I mean, this was at the college, but I mean, he probably wasn't really thinking so much. He probably was just trying to, I guess trying to cover as much ground as possible. You know? But um, when he got to the front of the bleachers, there lying on the ground was two tennis rackets and a can of tennis balls. As soon as he saw this, he began to panic. He searched through all um of the seats, then noticed that the door to the press box was cracked open. He made his way to the press press box and opened the door. There, lying on the floor was Rachel's naked, mutilated body. He began to scream as loud as he could. The police, aiding in the search, heard his agonizing shrieks. When they arrived at the press box, they saw the terror-stricken man kneeling over Rachel's body, sobbing. The police found several pieces of Deanna's clothing there. That was identified by her father, but Rachel's clothing was nowhere to be found. Deanna's search continued Thursday night through Friday, but they were still coming up with nothing. Ashland, nearby Medford Police, Oregon State Police, Jackson County Sheriff's Office, and Southern Oregon State College Campus never gave up hope on this, and all assisted in the search for little Deanna. Finally, at 3.45 Friday afternoon, the search for Deanna Jackman had finally ended.
0: How many days was this after?
1: It was three. How do you count it? Three days, two days. But when did they go missing? I'm pretty sure it was. Well, it said December twenty seventh. So it didn't say a day. No, but I'm pretty sure that it was. It, I actually think that it was um either Wednesday or Thursday, either one of those because it said that it continued through, whenever the body was found of Rachel's, it continued through Thursday night and Friday. You you know, okay. So I'm thinking that it was either Thursday afternoon, okay, or Wednesday, but um finally it yeah had ended. A police helicopter had spotted her lying in a clearing across from gravel pits on Dead Indian Road, east of Ashland, which I have no idea where that is, I've never been to it, but it was a lonely secluded area about six miles from where Rachel was found. From the marks on her body, it looked like she had been thrown out of a moving vehicle. And just an update, these girls were in 6th grade and both 11. And then, quote, This is the first time in Ashland that we've ever had a case like this, said Police Chief Vic Lively. We've had murders here before, but never children. It's got us very upset. End quote. Leads were coming in, but none seemed to be helpful in finding the killer. Chief Lively urged anyone with information to please come forward, because the killer could strike again. Public concern, outrage, and fear continued to grow in the town of Ashland. Parents were scared to let their kids go out and play. Ashland was always described as a relaxed, peaceful town where travelers could come and enjoy the scenery. Now, after the murders, it's a place of sadness and terror until the child killer is caught. The next day, Deputy Chief Medical Examiner Larry Lumen reported that Rachel Iser had died from strangulation. He noted that Rachel died from something tied tightly around her neck, and Deanna died from traumatic asphyxia <laughs>
0: Asphyxiation. Yeah,
1: asphyxiation. From pressure that was placed over her nose and mouth by a soft object. Numerous abrasions and deep cuts were visible on both of the girls' bodies, and the cuts were obviously produced by a sharp instrument of some sort, sort probably a knife or a razor. Marks on Deanna's body made it appear that she had been raped, and brutally beaten. It looked as if the marks could have been made with a whip or leather belt. Both girls have been viciously raped, and it was evident that they have been tortured prior to their deaths. Mm. The police continue their search for evidence along Dead Indian Road
0: where the so, body
1: was found, that's not no relation man. to the killing, but that I know, is that's very odd. Freaky. That is odd. Blumen went door to door in an attempt to find useful leads. Officers tore down sections of the press box where Rachel was murdered and sent them to the state crime lab for analysis. People who had been jogging on the track at the football field on the afternoon of Rachel's death. Came forward and offered police a description of a man who had been seen sitting alone in the bleachers. One jogger told authorities of a dark haired man in his mid 20s who looked angry and confused and he looked like he'd been talking to himself.
0: How do you look whenever you've been doing that? What does a person look like that looks like they've been talking to themselves?
1: Because her mouth was looked like it was moving, so he looked like it he they, was But said that he
0: had been, not that he was, that he had been. Is what you said? Well,
1: I said that it appeared that he was talking to himself. Had been
0: talking to himself. Yeah, that would be past tense. So I wonder what the after effect is of one looking like they had been talking to themselves. So you're saying though that it wasn't that, that it was that he was actually talking to himself? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because you had said past tense. That's fine. I thought that it was saying that it looked like he had been. Because that's what you said. At the time
1: that he spotted him he was the jogger was looked at him and looked like he had been talking to himself. Looked he like he was, was talking t- to yes. himself. Yes, that, but I'm two saying That's totally different thing. No, I'm not, I'm talking about the same time as this though. Right. But you said Well, look- a young boy and a sister told police about a stocky man who had asked them to play asked yeah, them to play basketball, but they declined the offer. They said that the man was wearing a green sweatshirt and looked like a Mexican. <laughs> okay. Witnesses who had seen the man were asked to draw sketches of him to compare to the police composite sketches and both of the drawings were very similar. Hmm. And then on Sunday the police felt confident they had their man. A 27-year-old man confessed to murdering the two girls. But just because you confess doesn't mean that <laughs> doesn't mean that you did it. Hmm. But um, after he first attempted suicide by jumping off um, an Interstate 5 overpass onto a passing semi-truck and its trailer, and he lived. Mm. <laughs> so he, I guess he just landed on top, then rode off into the sunset.
0: Wow. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess then he was banging uh, on the thing for trying yeah, him to
1: stop. Yeah, I know. Trying to get him to stop. After... However, after investigating the details of his confession thoroughly, their evidence evidence was quickly shattered. His confession conflicted with the evidence that had been collected, and after administering a lie detector test to him, he was cleared of any involvement in the homicides. On Monday, December 31st, the Ashland Police Department released Three composite drawings to the news media of a man they believed was a witness to the first murder and possibly a suspect in the case. Meanwhile, Ashland Police Sergeant Mel Clements was assigned by Chief Vic Lively to head a four man detective force to investigate the homicide case, along with assistance from the Oregon State Police and the Jackson County Sheriff's Department. The next day, after the composite drawings had been released to the public, the Ashland Police Department was swamped with telephone calls, each one offering information and names... Where the crap? (laughs) Yeah, and names that could lead to the identity of the man being sought for questioning. The door to the press box at Southern Oregon State College's stadium is always left unlocked and the area of Dead Indian Road is very secluded, located on the outskirts of town. This led police to theorize that the killer was an area resident because a transient would not be aware of these things. Meanwhile, the Jackson County District Attorney's Office Made it known to the public that a handmade quilt sold with dirt and blood had been found inside a paper sack at a car wash. That's just lucky, though. Like, why would you look inside a.
0: I guess, they were probably looking everywhere, I guess. Why would you look inside a paper sack? Because they were in just a looking car wash. A,
1: but I'm guessing
0: maybe it was outside the trash can, maybe or something. It
1: may have been. That's the only way. And they that were I would looking for like, it.
0: Must have been around that area, so they were just looking for anything.
1: Yeah, it had to be. But um, tests showed that the blood on the quilt matched that,
0: and it could have seeped through the bag too, if it did it say a pa- paper bag or a plastic bag?
1: Paper sack.
0: Yeah. So see, it might have seeped. The blood might have seeped through. Yeah, it probably did. It was mm-hmm. probably one of them.
1: Well, you know. Yeah but um, it matched that of Deanna Jackman. A photograph of the quilt appeared in the lo- local newspaper and on television, and authorities urged that anyone who recognized it to call the police immediately. The photo of the quilt brought quick results. It was identified by Peter White as belonging to him. He said that he Left it on his bed at his home on Idaho Street along with many other personal belongings when he began staying at another residence. White also told police that he met a man by the name of Manuel Cortez in late November and he allowed Cortez to use his Idaho Street residence on a temporary basis. He also informed the police that Cortez worked at a Mexican restaurant, the El Toro Blanco, in Ashland. After questioning the owners of the restaurant where Cortez worked, detectives felt that they had enough evidence to arrest him on suspicion of murder. However, when police arrived with their warrants at the Idaho Street residence on January 4, 1980, it was clear that Cortez had fled leaving the police with no one to take into custody for the double murder. Police learned from a girlfriend of Cortez's that he had lived in Ashland area for only six or seven weeks and was originally from City of Industry, California. Which is
0: (laughs) the weirdest name It
1: actually is. Yeah, it actually is a place.
0: I know. I mean, that's the weirdest freaking name.
1: It is. Why would you name... City of Industry. I don't get it. Well, it, that place was located near Los Angeles. She told police she did not know much about him, for she had only gone out with Cortez a few times.
0: But he was living there.
1: Yeah, but he was staying at the um at um you know the guy's okay place All that right. he that he met in November. Yeah, he was. Basically, lending them um, a place to stay, mm-hmm. you know. After checking with California authorities, Detective Clements learned that Cortez was wanted in California on kidnapping and attempted rape charges.
0: Imagine that.
1: Yeah. So it really looks like this is their guy. He allegedly kidnapped a sixteen-year-old. I am th- hoping that this is w- what it is. Pomenot. Pomona? Pomona girl? Or maybe it's supposed to be Panama, but that's how it was spelled, you know? But, um, girl in 1977 and held her for ransom in a garage where he tried to rape her. He had planned to ask a ransom from her parents, but the girl refused to give Cortez her parents' phone number. (coughs) (laughs) So... So basically she escaped unharmed and telephoned police. Because <laughs> so basically he just left it because he couldn't get he couldn't get her to talk. So
0: Is through it Pomona? Pal- pa-
1: Pomona, that's it. That's, that's exactly in California. It. Yeah, that is it. Through painstaking detective work by The men investigating the case, authorities learned that Cortez had a brother living in Salinas and a mother in City of Industry, both very likely spots for the hunted man to appear. California police were alerted by the Jackson County Sheriff's Department that Cortez might be going to visit his brother in Salinas.
0: I feel, though, if you go to a relative, if you're on the run, don't go to a relative.
1: No, you never That's want to like go the to a relative. That's like the first places
0: they're going to be looking.
1: Or either you want to go to the first place that they looked. <laughs> Something like that. I don't know. That's better than going to another relative's that... You Become
0: know, homeless. and yeah. Just live up under a bridge.
1: But their efforts were once again hopeless. Cortez had left his brother's home prior to the arrival of police, not wasting any time, detectives set up a stakeout of Cortez's mother's house in City of Industry, where they waited for his arrival, hoping that he would indeed show up. And then, around noon on Saturday, January fifth, 1980, Manuel Cortez was observed by detectives approaching his mother's home. He was arrested immediately, without resistance, only eight days after he allegedly raped, tortured, and killed Rachel Iser and Deanna Jackman, Cortez, waving his Miranda rights, agreed to a taped interview with Los Angeles police during the course of the hour-long interview, which is not long at
0: all sure it.
1: for a uh, you know,
0: for a confession to yeah, take place exactly, and everything,
1: exactly. He confessed to killing the two Ashland girls, and made comments concerning his mental state of mind. The po- good Lord, I'm I'm perfect. Excuse me, oh, I can't get it out. Ooh. The police were certain that they had the right man, for his confession did not conflict with the evidence in any way. The tape would subsequently be used as evidence and played at his trial. Extradition procedures that exactly? yep, yeah. yep, were instituted against Cortez immediately. California authorities agreed to support his extradition to Oregon rather than retain him for trial on the California charges. Meanwhile, at the urging of Jackson County District Attorney Justin Smith, a grand jury returned two murder indictments against Manuel Trinidad-Cortez, charging him with the strangulation death of Rachel Iser and the suffocation of Deanna Jackman. A jury of seven men and five women were selected on November 14th, and the trial date was to be held on November 18th, 1980, Bill Meade and his wife Gail were the owners of El Toro Blanco. About three weeks in December 1979, Mrs. Meade told the court that when Cortez showed up for work on December 30th, his hair was a mess. And
0: <laughs> <laughs> his hair was a mess. That he's guilty then.
1: Well, I sort of came, well, because it was a different word to use, I didn't know how to say it. So My I hair's been a mess for, like, freaking... Mouth, mused, or something like that. That's what she really... Muse. I don't know. Something like that. And his shirt was wrinkled. Oh. Wow. <laughs> his shirt was wrinkled. Gosh darn it, he sure did. He sure did done it, because his shirt was wrinkled and all up, And his hair was honey. a mess. That's a crime in of itself. I, this is a quote. He usually was neatly dressed and personable. End personable. quote, said Mrs. Meade. He could normally wait on about eight tables, but that day he could only handle about three. She also testified that he had to be sent home for work that day. Mrs. Meade also said that Cortez came in the day before and asked for his check early so he could put a deposit on a house he wanted to rent. She said that his hair was in clumps on that day, and it looked like if someone had been pulling his hair
0: out.
1: Indicating a struggle might have occurred. It appeared to the jury that his hair was pulled by one of the girls while being raped, in an attempt to stop the attack. Marks on Deanna Jackman's mutilated body matched a pattern on a belt belonging to Cortez, which Detective Edwards had seized at Cortez's brother's home, indicating that she had been brutally whipped with it. Michael Hurley, the criminologist who testified earlier in the trial, took the stand again. He testified that the bloodstains found on the rug in the house were Cortez was staying or the same as Deanna's, indicating that she had been taken there and she was tortured. Hurley also identified a pair of kid power tennis shoes and a pair of hobo jeans as those that were given to him by Ashland police man Buddy Grove, who said earlier that they were in Cortez's possession when he was arrested. Deanna's father substantiated Hurley's testimony by identifying the kid power shoes as belonging to his daughter. Rachel's mother also identified the jeans as those of her daughter. As it was earlier agreed upon by the defense and prosecution, the taped confessions which Cortez had made while in the custody of Los Angeles Police Department was played to the jury in its entirety. And here we go.
0: Is this it? Yeah. In its entirety? Yeah.
1: Okay. I killed two girls up there in Ashland, two little girls, admitted Cortez in the taped recording. At one point, Cortez said he considered taking his own life after he had realized what he'd done.
0: I mean, I'm pretty sure I'd realize what I'm done right whenever yeah. I do it, whenever you're slashing yeah, it.
1: Yeah. After it really hit me, what I'd done, that is, I just wanted to die. He said that there was a rifle in the closet, which had been left by his friend White. There were a lot of bullets in a drawer, he stated on the tape. I took one out and laid it on the bed. I just laid it there. I didn't load it. I sat and then looked at it. I sat there, and I just looked at the gun, trying to get up and do it, but my mind wanted me to do it, but my body just wouldn't move.
0: Well, thank goodness, because he said it would have been a disaster if it's yeah. anything like his other attempt.
1: Yeah. Then I got the bullet and put it into my pocket, and I put the gun back, he said and was silent for a while. In the taped statement, Cortez collaborated his acquaintance's testimony about having borrowed borrowed her car. He said he borrowed it to take Deanna Jackman's body into a mountainous area outside of town to go and dump it. Cortez said in his confession he had met the girls while they were walking through Ashland, on their way to play tennis. He said all three of them sat down on the bleachers at the football field and talked for a little while, and then he asked them to go to the press box after gaining their confidence.
0: No, thank you.
1: I told them to go in and sit down, and that's when it happened, Cortez said. He said he killed Rachel in the press box after he tied them up. Using sh- strips of their own clothing, he said that Deanna did not see her friend being raped or killed, and she did not see Rachel after she was dead.
0: How not? I thought they were both in the yeah, press Yeah, well, box. that's
1: that's the confusion. Yeah, because there's no walls don't, in the press People box. don't really know how, where, what he did with her while he might have. Plus, looked, didn't the other girl know, have on,
0: one the other girl's clothes? Didn't they find her, the other girl's clothes yeah, the other in girl's the press clothes box? But they, were there, there, find, but they didn't find
1: yeah. that girl's clothes. But, I mean, he, I mean, he could have blindfolded the one girl. Yeah. I mean, it's always a possibility. But Cortez said that after he killed Rachel, Deanna walked with him to his duplex.
0: Right, was, and she didn't wonder where her friend was or anything. Yeah, uh, right.
1: This makes no sense. I would have, I mean, he probably mostly forced her there. Yeah. To be honest. Probably. Probably
0: rolled her down the bleachers and put something,
1: her in Something, something like that. He was then asked if Deanna had put up a fuss about going with him. No. Mm-hmm. No. She was just a And friend. didn't even
0: get a racket or in a ball?
1: No. She was just a friendly little girl. She didn't see her friend get hurt. She was separated from her friend, he explained. Then he said, I killed her there at my duplex. Most of the defense attorney, um, Harry Carp's closing statement, attempted to convince the jury that Cortez was suffering from a mental disease at the time of the killings and was not responsible for his actions. But guess what? This didn't work. They didn't buy it. And then on Tuesday, November 25th, 1980, after the jury deliberated for two hours and 35 minutes, they returned a verdict of guilty on two counts, which could bring Cortez the death sentence. But, of course, he ended up getting two counts of life in prison instead.
0: Might as well. It's cheaper to hold him there. They would never kill him, probably. Exactly.
1: Well, that is my fascinating story.
0: I always hate the children's Uh, death.
1: Yes, and very sad. However, story. I still
0: feel lost because I don't think that was a bull that was a whole thing of bull Malaki. That that he was telling in that confession. I don't know why they took that for
1: I don't know. I'm not quite I mean, sure, but that's Manuel DNA, Trinidad Cortez.
0: All right, well mine is a little bit lighthearted because I didn't want okay. Two Debbie Downers total down.
1: Yeah, you can't do that.
0: However, it's still murder, so it's still bad. Exactly. All right, well, let me get get right into it. Now, the series of events, they began on Tuesday evening, October the 12th, 1982, about 10.30 p.m. on Interstate 84. That's approximately 20 miles east of the Dalles, Oregon. Wait a second. Why are...
1: All of these freaking cases that we've been doing, dude, is so close to your birthday. I don't know. I don't understand it.
0: They have all been in the 1980, or 1980,
1: 1982. Mm-hmm. Um, the last one was like 19, 1980, 81. I don't
0: know. Three men were driving west towards Portland in a small pickup truck equipped with a Citizens Band radio. An ample supply of beer and a seven millimeter rifle.
1: Think it's our
0: look like our truck minus the rifle. (laughs) I mean, it kind of sounds like
1: (laughs) a Chevrolet pickup.
0: (laughs) They were chugging the beers one after another, whooping it up, and generally having just a good old time at the expense of endangering the lives of everyone else on the road and breaking countless laws.
1: Well, yeah.
0: And those laws, of course, were designed to protect all of us law-abiding citizens in the area. But regardless of the rights of other people, these three men were going to do as they damn well pleased on this fateful well, you know, autumn evening.
1: Well, you know, they'll stop for a uh, um, petty
0: seatbelt.
1: <laughs> I <know>. get <laughs> Seatbelt. But they won't get the drunken folks, will they?
0: Breaker one nine, breaker one nine, said the intoxicated man (laughs) driving that small pickup as he spoke into his citizens' band radio's microphone. He was trying to get the attention of the big rig in front of him. This here's the big SOB, that son of a bitch, and I'm at your back door. Either haul ass or get your ass out of the way, because I'm coming through. (laughs) On a big dog. He laughed like a maniac, into the microphone as he shot around the truck in front of him, driving erratically and raising the middle finger at the trucker as he passed, as you do, just to be polite. Hello, I'm in France. Hello.
1: You know, it always seems like, I don't, I don't understand it. always seems like beer does does that to people, but I n- never understand that.
0: The trucker merely sounded a couple of blasts on his air horn in protest as the pickup passed. End of story right now. After about 75 miles east of Portland, truck driver Sterling Martin pulled his 18-wheel rig to the side of the road in an attempt to get some sleep. It was a dark stretch of freeway, and at that time of night, there was little traffic and therefore little noise. Until, that is, a pickup with three occupants pulled in front of the 18-wheeler and backed into the parked truck. Bumping Martin back into a waking state of consciousness, giving himself a few moments for his head to clear, he watched the three occupants of the pickup urinate at the side of the road. All three just lined up pin. Well, you know. When they had finished relieving themselves, Martin got out of his rig. Why'd you back up into my truck? Asked Martin, obviously somewhat perturbed. Do you have any identification, just in case I have to file a report for damage, he asked, the driver of the pickup. The driver told him to go to hell. (laughs) Then he jumped into his pickup and he hurriedly drove away. Infuriated, Martin climbed back into his 18-wheeler and followed the small pickup in hot pursuit, not really knowing what he would do if and when he caught up with it. And even with the pedal to the metal, though, Martin's load was too heavy for him to gain on the small pickup truck.
1: Why didn't he just go use the bathroom? Who? Martin. (laughs) I'm just playing.
0: (laughs) And it was the three men were out of sight within a couple of minutes. It had been too dark for him to get the pickup's license plate number. About 25 to 30 minutes, and as many miles later, however, Martin spotted the pickup parked by the side of the road. The three men were inside the pickup, and Martin reasoned that they were either planning to go outside to pee again or had just got finished peeing.
1: There's a lot of wazers,
0: ain't there? It's that beer. <laughs>
1: That's weird.
0: Whatever the case, Martin pulled onto the shoulder in front of the pickup and quickly jumped out with a hammer in his hand. Cool. Martin first asked the passengers, particularly the driver, to get out of the pickup, and when they refused, he angrily banged on the side of the door with the hammer. He could see that the three men were drinking beer, which, in his opinion, was a menace to all others on the highway. His anger was getting even hotter, and Martin took the hammer and broke out the driver's side window. Good Lord. This action brought the driver out of his pickup. The driver shouted an obscenity at the pickup. Before he could utter another word, Martin drew back and punched him square in the face. Oh. He knocked the beer drinking driver to the ground. No. Obviously drunk, it was difficult for the man to recover his balance. And wanting to make sure that he couldn't, Martin kicked him in the stomach and on the side. At this point, one of the other passengers got out of the truck to offer some drunkenly assistance to his drinking buddy, but he, too, was quickly knocked down by the angry trucker. As the scuffle continued between the three men outside the pickup, one of the men remained inside. Another big truck approached from behind and pulled to the shoulder and parked.
1: That's not I mean, can't fair. you see
0: just going down the highway, seeing these three people fighting? That's not very fair. As that driver emerged from his truck, the two men from the pickup saw their opportunity to flee and did just that. Yeah. Within seconds, they were again headed for the Interstate 84 towards Portland, leaving the angry but exhausted Martin and the other trucker behind.
1: My gosh, that one's in Oregon, too.
0: Yeah. In the meantime, Martin alerted several other truckers in the area of what had so far occurred and they he asked them to be on the lookout for the pickup in question and if spotted the truckers were asked to obtain the license plate number and report it immediately to the state police
1: yeah i mean they could have done that instead
0: less than half an hour later however the pickup was spotted by another trucker at the side of the road once again he pulled up ahead of the pickup, leaving a lot of distance so as not to arouse suspicion. Hopefully the pickup's occupants would think the trucker was merely stopping to rest, but the trucker had another idea altogether. While the three men were outside, once again, peing
1: Oh my god.
0: Out of earshot of their citizens band radio, The quick-thinking trucker notified all other truckers in the area that he wanted to form a caravan so that they might be able to box in the pickup at some point on the freeway and escort it to the nearest state police station. When the pickup pulled away at a normal rate of speed, the trucker did likewise, keeping up with the pickup all the while. And within minutes before the occupants of the pickup knew what was happening, several Truckers had boxed the pickup in with their rigs on three sides. This looked like a scene right out of Sam Peckinpah movie Convoy, except there wasn't a rubber duck in this and there was no Chris Christopherson. Just when it looked like the truckers had the pickup boxed in with no possible escape, the pickup veered to the suddenly widened shoulder and shot past it, understandably hostile escort and back into the outside lane of traffic. The driver of the pickup had obviously put the accelerator to the floor when he saw this opportunity, a move that the truckers had not foreseen because of the inebriated state of the pickup's occupants. Another move the truckers hadn't anticipated was the sudden slowing down of the pickup and the then firing of a rifle by one of its passengers. Even though the shot had clearly been fired at the pursuing trucks, it didn't hit its target. It was enough, however, to prompt the truckers to back off a little bit, a move which allowed the pickup to flee the area. It was one thing to try to get the drunks off the road, but it was quite another to risk being shot in the process. Police were quickly notified of the chase and the shooting incident by radio, and Oregon State Trooper Kenneth Jane was waiting on the Roost Rock overpass. Trooper James saw the small pickup pass under the overpass at approximately 11.25 p.m. And he noticed and he notified other troopers in the area to be on the lookout for it as it headed west on the freeway. In the meantime, James pulled Martin over to the shoulder of the road so he could get a better, more complete explanation of what had occurred, and then ordered all of the other truckers involved to pull off at a Troutdale truck stop so that they could fill out reckless driving reports on the small pickup. After the reports were completed, the pack of mini trucks pulled back onto the freeway and continued west. A few miles past the Troutdale truck stop was the Fairview, Oregon exit. And, as the truckers passed by, they failed to notice the small pickup that had intentionally concealed itself from their view. Those truckers who failed to notice the pickup and continued driving west had nothing to fear or worry about. It was the trucker who took the Fairview exit, which leads onto a popular truck stop that was in trouble. It was too noisy in the cab for the trucker to hear the short ring out. But he did see the flash of fire, and he heard the breaking glass. He also felt the impact of the bullet as it hit him in the chest. The searing pain it caused as the bullet ripped and burned his flesh. Breaker 1-9, Breaker 1-9, this is Ocean Breeze. I'm at your back door and saw somebody take a shot at you. Looked like some pretty raw characters. Are you okay? Asked the trucker who had also taken the Fairview exit just moments after the first trucker. I've been hit, yelled the wounded trucker into his microphone. Those lunatics shot me! Shot me in the chest! Get some help, quick! (laughs) Before the other trucker could reply, the wounded trucker lost control of his rig, and it flipped over on its side. Dang! The observing trucker shook his head in disbelief as he slowed to park his rig, and attempted to assist the wounded man. When the trucker reached the overturned rig, he could see that the driver was seriously hurt. He managed to climb up the side of the truck to the driver's side, which, in its overturned position, was now topside. And he opened the door to try to help the wounded man inside. But by the time he was able to get to the trucker, it was too late.
1: Gosh, that quick. Yeah.
0: The wounded, and he didn't really know it was really that hurt, you know? Exactly. I mean, I wouldn't. The wounded man simply took a couple of final gasps of air and died. Wow. Within a matter of minutes, the entire exit had been blocked off by arriving state police cars, as well as ambulance and other emergency personnel. Several futile attempts to revive the dead trucker were made, all to no avail. The damage from the bullet was just too extensive, and even if they had been able to revive him, he probably wouldn't have lasted very long. One of the frustrated paramedics stated, looks like we're going to have to call the meat wagon for this one. Whoever shot him either took careful aim or was firing several several shots rapidly, one of which hit him square in his chest.
1: Yeah, had to be like...
0: Yeah. It wasn't or either just pure happenstance.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: It wasn't long before several additional homicide investigators arrived from the Oregon State Police offices in nearby Portland, along with their crime lab specialists.
1: Well, they helped with with my case.
0: Oh, maybe they knew each other. Good job. It was at this time that the dead man was identified as 41-year-old Charles L. Stacy of Salem, Oregon, a truck driver for a trucking company operating out of Pay it, Idaho. Salem. The big break in the case came when detectives, through the cooperation of state police and the many truckers involved, were able to obtain the pickup's license plate number. They got it because one alert trucker had written it down, and although he was many miles from the crime scene by now, and he was unaware of what had happened, he had stopped at a payphone and called it in when he learned of the killing while having a coffee at a truck stop near Salem.
1: Why'd he write down his license plate number?
0: Well, he he had gotten it back whenever they were chasing the truck or whatever.
1: uh. Okay.
0: But he didn't know nothing had happened. See, he thought that everything was okay, so he just kept driving.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: Not wasting any time, the cops ran the number through the motor vehicle division's computers. Within a matter of minutes, they learned that the pickup in question... Was registered under Oregon plates to a James Thomas Combs Sr. of Portland. Two detectives, a Multnomah County sheriff's deputy, and two Portland police officers were sent immediately to the Combs residence.
1: Yeah, that's how you say it. <laughs> I hope
0: probably not. <laughs> and at mama. The police units arrived at Combs' residence located and the 6800 block of North Campbell Avenue, a normally peaceful neighborhood, the search and arrest warrants. Combs had obviously been drinking all evening and all night and throughout the morning, police noted, because he was visibly intoxicated, staggering all over the place, and slurring all of his words. Even at in that state, however, Combs was able to talk with the cops in a rational and calm manner. His tone changed, though, when they started searching his house and his pickup. As police were searching for items that might link Combs to the actual shooting, Lieutenant Daniel Lambert made verbatim notes of a heated conversation Combs held with the relative. A conversation that was not only shocking, but incriminating as well. When he'd heard enough, he handcuffed Combs and then placed him under arrest. Lambert wouldn't release details of the conversation, however. Police confiscated three rifles from Combs' house as well as a 7mm hunting rifle found behind the seat of his pickup. Police also found several empty beer cans inside the truck, which they placed inside bags and tagged as evidence. Combs was advised of his rights under Miranda and taken to jail. After arriving at the jail, Combs began complaining of pain in his sides and his stomach and was taken to Portland, Medical Center where he was treated for two broken ribs. The emergency room doctor said that although the rib injuries were not serious, Combs had suffered a bruise on the back of his head which needed attention. While Combs was at the hospital, the doctor told detectives that he had made a phone call and part of the conversation of which was overheard. Detectives were told that Combs told someone that it was not murder, just self-defense. It ain't no problem. The following morning, an autopsy revealed that Charles Stacy, the victim, had died from a single gunshot wound to the chest. The sad part is, Stacy had not even been involved in the incident with Combs and his drunken driving. He had just been at the wrong place at the wrong time. He was not even one of those truckers that were like boxing him in.
1: Yeah, well, that's unlucky.
0: Combs was swiftly indict- indicted by. Multnomah County Grand Jury, <laughs> on charges of murder and the shooting death of Charles Stacy and Combs just as swiftly pleaded innocent to the charges. In the meantime, detectives continued to pound for answers in the senseless slang. They learned of two other passengers that were riding with Combs, riding with Combs the night of the shooting. One of them was a relative. The other was a hitchhiker that he had just picked up, just for kicks. Neither of the passengers were charged in the crime, but the hitchhiker, 22-year-old David Chambers, told the cops that Combs ordered the other passengers to get a rifle from behind the seat and load it with ammunition. Chambers told the cops that once the rifle had been loaded, the other passenger fired one shot out the window at the many large trucks that were chasing them, and he said that that was whenever he asked to be let out of the truck. Chambers said that Combs let him out of the pickup at the fairway exit near the spot where Stacy died. Chambers also told the cops that he and Combs had been drinking a lot of beer that night, and although they were seriously drunk, they were not just falling down, slobbering drunk. Yeah,
1: well, it doesn't matter.
0: (laughs) He also confirmed the trucker's reports that they'd stopped alongside the freeway many, many times that night to pee. (laughs) During the final hours of the trial, the 43-year-old Portland Railroad worker that was charged with murder listened intently. However, he showed no emotion as he was portrayed in two ways. He was portrayed by the prosecution as an intentional murderer, and he was portrayed by the defense as a man who was simply trying to cover up what had happened, possibly to protect someone else.
1: Mm. Don't think so. Or maybe it was... It was just a drunken bum who just. It
0: was, he was just drunk and he, he, got, just, pissed. he, he was, got pissed. He just got pissed was he, was, he, was screwing he him with like, the wrong trucker.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then he just. Right. That's it. It just happened. I mean, it's not that he. The might problem have intentionally is, is he shot a
0: completely it. innocent person. Yeah. The jury found James Thomas Combs guilty of murder.
1: Well, I figure that.
0: At. His sentencing in a statement prepared for Judge Dale, Combs apologized to the court. I apologize to the court and to the state for the things that have happened in the past. I Whoa. drink a lot. I know it's caused a lot of trouble for my family. End quote. <laughs> well, apologies don't really matter. There's not really too much of an apology, though. Uh, no, no. When the shooting occurred, Combs told the judge that he was under extreme emotional shock from having been beaten up by one trucker (laughs) and from having been drunk at the time. Combs was sentenced to life in prison by Judge Dale. Judge Dale stated that the court had no discretion to alter that sentence and that he was not indicating that he would if he could. In response to a motion made by the defense for a new trial, Judge Dale stated, quote, The court sees no basis to grant a new trial in this case. The court sees no newly discovered evidence that falls under the state statute for new trial. Mr. Combs, in my mind, you had a fair trial. Every member of the public should know that an innocent man is not being sent to prison. All the physical evidence and testimony at the trial would make it impossible for what the defense contended to actually have happened. James Combs is serving his life sentence at Oregon State Penitentiary, but his actual time served will be decided by a parole board.
1: Really? Yeah. Did I ever say where mom was being held at? No. I would imagine it's probably Oregon State Penitentiary. Because might be that is when the trial, that's where the trial happened. So they, never, could never know. they could be remiss.
0: They could be remiss. Making that jailhouse moonshine. Yeah. All right. That's our stories for you today. Please remember two things. Two very very important things. First important thing. Yeah. Take a moment. It costs nothing. It's free. Go to your place that you listen to this podcast. Leave us a rating and a review.
1: Yes. And, Secondly, and if
0: you don't believe us,
1: by we read every oh, single every review one. and every single star spangled five stars, whatever that's supposed to be, five, five, five stars that we get, we see them all. I'm telling you. Man, and we, we talk like about them. them. Yep. You know, Even the bad ones. Uh, and Some of them are five
0: stars, but still kind of... um, I don't know. It's a little moody. I don't
1: know.
0: But anyway, it's all good. But it's fine. Yes, just please go take that moment. You don't understand how important it is for this show. To please, if you have not, rate and review. Secondly. Yeah. Yeah. If you've done that, then if you have extra, a few extra bucks in your pocket, $5 $5 a month. Go to patreon.com, add in the boondocks, and consider supporting our podcast.
1: Please, 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 podcast. please, please. We have all sound please. stuff to
0: improve the sound quality, but we do everything ourselves. But we
1: really, the- really trying not to do any ads or try any of that because it's just... I don't like I ads. I don't like them either. We I hate...
0: We listening could have ads, it. but I do. I have chosen not yeah, to. Yeah, but I hate listening to ads. That's why I don't feel like. Okay, but I have chosen not to do ads. You kind of wanted ads, but I chose not to do ads we, because. Yes, I, I know that. All right. But we're trying to improve our, but we do everything ourselves. we really,
1: ourselves. really need more um, patrons, so please. We have one think, patron, and please. we so
0: thank that one patron. Please she has been with us. They they are just. And their dog. Yeah, and their dog. (laughs) They are just so great. But, um. Please. We do everything ourselves.
1: Be a a super fan. We'll call you a friggin' super fan. Go on there and just do that, and it'll be great. You'll get a shout out. And people will know your name. You'll be famous.
0: (laughs) But we do everything ourselves. We do all the research, all the writing, all the money. Obviously. All the actual talking. Yeah. And we do and, all our, the, and, our hey, and our accents aren't fake. And our accents <laughs> aren't fake. We do all the editing, all the posting. We host on our own website and purchase everything.
1: <laughs> That's a lot once you and break it down. And it actually is a lot. Once you break it down, yeah.
0: All right. Well, do we have anything else?
1: Well, anyways, yes, and there's actually this podcast, and you really need to go, crap, wait a second, and you really need to go check it out, it's called True Crime Deadline, and just a sec we we'll play um, his promo, his name is Matt Johnson. Emmy
0: award winning? Yeah,
1: for real, that's pretty cool though. Just, just pretty
0: cool. I'd be all over just than that man.
1: Uh-huh. I swear to you, I would be just bragging to every freaking everybody at the
0: beginning. I'd be like, "This is a Emmy award winning Stan."
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, anyways, it goes over like um, you know, scene details of true crime stories he has covered over his career, and um, I think I like it. I enjoy it. I, I subscribe think, yeah, to it. I enjoy. I, it. I am too. I've got my own personal um profile. Oh, that I've subscribed. I'm glad to people. because I'm subscribed to people too. So, yeah, it's definitely something to check out. But we will play his promo in just a second. But
0: after we say, of course, as always, I have been Stan, and
1: I'm always Drew, and we will see you next time down in these bad bootoms, oh baby. Goodness.
0: From the Hollywood Hills to your earholes, this is True Crime Deadline. I'm Matt Johnson, boots on the ground reporter and host of True Crime Deadline, the podcast that gives you a unique reporter's point of view from the yellow crime scene tape to the gavel in the courtroom. We paint a picture on True Crime Deadline with murder, mystery and missing persons cases my contacts grant you access to those case files with disturbing new details and exclusive interviews details might have you thinking no that didn't happen they didn't do that did they and then there's the oprah inspired where are they now? Binge these 30 minute Crime Bite episodes where you get your podcasts. Buckle up, investigators. You're on deadline. For more information about the podcast, visit truecrimedeadline.com. Until next time.